Last week, we, we left off immediately finishing in uh, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. We, we were reading about how you know, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He's, he's making the case that the wrath of God is real, that you can see it working itself out in people's lives. As people are living against the grain of the universe, they are um, rub, running up against God and his will. And then we find that he gives a long list between verse 26 and 32. Paul is giving this long list of of examples of creation worship. Because remember, Romans chapter 1 is Paul convincing us all that the wrath of God is real. And we can see the wrath of God in the world around us. And so he mentions people being unrighteous, wickedness. He does mention homosexual behavior, which we talked about last week. He talks about greed. He talks about evil, disobedience to parents, dishonest, unloving, unmerciful, approving of those who do wrong. You know, if you really think about it, what is Paul doing in Romans 1? He's running through the Ten Commandments. He's running through the implications of the Ten Commandments. He's reminding us that we are lawbreakers. And so uh, his point is that human beings have gone very badly and there is nothing that a human being can do to remedy or fix the situation that we find ourselves in. That brings us to Romans chapter 2. So in Romans 2, Paul wants us to know that none of us is so special that we won't have to face God for how we've lived, that we won't have to account for what we've done. And then in verse 3, he says, he says essentially in verse 3, if you can see sin in other people, then you should be able to see it in yourself as well. This is one thing human beings are really good at. We're really good at seeing the fault in others. We're good at seeing the sin in others. We're good at identifying the sin in other people. And we're very bad at noticing it in our own hearts. And so I'm going to read verse 3. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? By the way, I might sound like I'm using a really loud voice. I feel like the kitchen's louder today. I'm going to use a bigger voice. But if if the kitchen can be quieter, that's awesome too. (laughs) All right, no food for me. That's fine. I never get food. Wait, how did I get this way? Never mind. (laughs) So he says, he says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Um, If you get mad at someone for cutting you off in traffic you show that you have a sense of the laws of the road, right? And then he's saying, and then you go and cut other people off in traffic. You know you do it. You know you've done it. And and so he's he's making, he is emphasizing the universal guilt. And he's, he's, he's emphasizing that none of us are so special that we get a pass. So um, he goes to, you go to verse 11 and he's saying, for God shows no partiality, Right? He, he wants them to understand there's no special treatment for anyone. There's no special treatment for any special people group. Nobody gets to sidestep these problems that he's highlighting. And then he, he spends a lot of time in verse 17 to 29 talking about the Jewish people. Um, he, says, he says, look, you might be tempted to think this message is just for the outsiders. You might be tempted to think this is just for, for the Gentiles. Right? He's, he's writing, in a sense, to the Jewish people. And he's saying, look, you might be tempted to think this is for all those bad Gentiles, but it's for you too. He says, this is a message that you also need to hear. He says, your ethnicity is no protection against the comet that is coming. Um, 
He says all of us have to reckon with God's wrath, regardless of our age, regardless of our sex, regardless of our nationality, regardless of, of our, our age, regardless of any sort of category we might put ourselves into, whether we've had a hard life, whether we've had an easy life, we will have to answer to God. Nothing is going to be a protection or an excuse for us. That's, that's the message of chapter 2. And, you know, for a Jewish person to hear that, that would be really hard because you've got the law and you've probably been keeping the law or at least you've been keeping the letter of the law. And you probably really find some protection there. And Paul's writing from that perspective. Yeah, that was me. I did all that stuff, too. And it did no good for my soul. And then then he brings us to chapter three. The first part of chapter three, Paul, Paul has just argued all people are guilty of sin. But Paul wants to be clear that this is also true. And he, he really brings it to bear on the Jewish people again. Um, See, so he's arguing, look, they have special privileges. The Jewish people have special privileges. And they have special benefits the Gentiles never had. Um, it, but he's also saying, look, it's not like Judaism has been a waste. Um, think about what he says at the beginning of 3. He says, what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Um, so just to, to pause there for a minute, he's saying, look, you guys had the covenant of grace. You had the gift of circumcision. Uh, you had this sign from God. And not only that, but you had his oracles. In other words, you had the words that God spoke to you as a nation and to you as a people. And you, you haven't fulfilled what's there, right? You haven't, you haven't trusted in the Messiah, and he's saying, though, he says, it's not like Judaism is a waste. It's not like all of this, this past behind him is a waste. He says it doesn't change God's demand for moral perfection. Um, ultimately, the playing field for all people, Jews and Gentiles, is level. A- an unbelieving Jew and an unbelieving Gentile are both still unbelievers. Um, the Jewish people, with all their advantages, don't have any superior place if they don't trust in Jesus. And, and that's what they're called to do. They're called to trust in Christ um, and we'll see that later on. We're going to see that later in the, in the letter that Paul actually says, I yearn for the Jewish people to come to Jesus. In fact, he says, I would rather go to hell if some of them would be saved by me doing that. So he's got really strong feelings and a strong love for the Jewish people. Um, but then, but then verse 9, he starts quoting the Old Testament. He's showing that the Bible's teaching is consistent. It's been that, that all human beings are sinners, Right? Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 onward is just a great, great section. If you ever meet somebody who just thinks they're a really great person, uh, if you just feel like, like hitting them with the biggest hammer, uh, you know, this is what you hit them with, right? This is the, the, the one. I don't really recommend hammers. Uh, I like scalpels. They're usually better for talking to people. Um, but he says there's no one righteous, not even one. So there's, there, are no, there is no one who's special, nobody who gets through. Uh, everybody has to deal with their own issues. And then in verse 20, he steals away one of the options for the readers. Because in verse 20, he says what? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So in other words, the person who maybe says, well, I'm a good person. I know there's a comet coming, but I'm a good person. I know the wrath of God is real, but I'm, I'm really good. And Paul's response is, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You can't be good enough. Um, when you say that, you're making a claim about what makes you secure. You're, you're saying that your own goodness is what makes you secure. And Paul is saying, no, there's, there's no help there. Stop looking over there. Stop thinking 
I know that's the way you drift. I know that that is your impulse. That's what you gravitate towards. But stop doing it. Stop looking at your own goodness. You're not more secure because you're more good. And then he says, but um, he says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What does Paul mean when he says justified? Well, he's using law court language. He's using the sort of language that somebody back in that day would have used to refer to somebody being in law, the, the court, and having somebody pronounce a verdict over them, guilty or not guilty, righteous or unrighteous. And so the problem is, if we've broken the law at all, then we can't undo that by being good people. And if you've broken the law, you've broken the law. If you've broken the law, you can't become an unlawbreaker just by keeping the next law that comes your way, right? It still doesn't erase the past. It doesn't erase what's been done. Um, the law doesn't function that way. The law was never given to function that way. Being good people is not meant to wipe the slate clean. And so, and so what are we left with? Well, you get to the second half of chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And he talks about where righteousness can come from. Where doesn't it come from? The law. All right. So we've eliminated the, the default for so many of his readers, right? So many of his readers are going to say the law is where righteousness comes from. What is he going to say, beginning in verse 21, where does righteousness come from instead? Not from the law, but from... If you look at, look at the heading... Of verse 21. I don't know what your, your, if yours has a different setting. Faith, right? Faith, not the law. Faith, he kind of sets them against each other. He goes, look, you've got two ways you can go where you can find life. He says, don't go through the law, go through faith. And so here, here he's arguing that the righteousness of God is on display in the gospel. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe, right? And then he says, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you keep going, let's read two more verses. And then you're going to see the problem of forgiveness. So this is what, something I really want to highlight. Something Paul highlights. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was, here's the key. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So why does Christ, why is Christ put forward as a, someone to remove sin? Because it was to show God's righteousness. Before people were getting forgiven People were getting a pardon from God, and they were bad people. So bad people are getting forgiven, and the judge is letting them go free. Now, normally, uh, whenever you guys get your ballots in the mail, have you, you guys gotten your mail, mail-in ballots yet in the mail? Uh, I got my list, and guess what? I don't know any of those judges. I, I see these judges, and I generally don't vote for the judges if I don't know about the judges. I don't vote to keep them. I don't vote to get rid of them. I just leave them alone. But sometimes you will see something in the news where a guilty person gets set free or somebody who's done something terrible ends up walking away uh, as though they weren't guilty at all. And normally when somebody gets acquitted, 
or somebody doesn't face punishment for their crimes, what do we usually think of that judge? Bad judge, right? What are you doing? You're supposed to do your job. Sometimes we don't know everything. Sometimes we presume that we know the whole case based on a headline or whatever. But generally speaking, when we see guilty people walk free, it is disturbing to us. And Paul is actually saying, look, God, throughout the whole Old Testament, what is he doing? He's pardoning people's sins. Yeah, right. David confesses to sleeping with Bathsheba and having her husband killed. And what does God tell David through Nathan the prophet? Not only does he say, you are the man, like you're guilty, but then he says, you have been pardoned and you get to go free. Right? And it's a very scandalous thing if you're Uriah's family, <laughs> right? If you are anybody who knew the man and you hear that God is just letting David go free, you go, what are you talking about? So in other words, it looks like God is one of the bad judges. He is letting genuinely guilty people walk free. And Paul says this is why Jesus had to be put forward to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He was forgiving people for the sake of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. And it needed to actually be done. The actual sin offering need to be, needed to be made. Uh, somebody needed to be put forward who could actually bear the sins that were all being acquitted. These people are being acquitted for. And so I just want you to just sort of marinate in this thought for a moment that we think forgiveness for God is easy. We think that forgiveness for God is just as easy as winking at the sin or just, you know, dismissing it or just saying it's okay. You can go free. I mean, I do that when someone bumps into me. I, they say, oh, I'm sorry. And I say, that's okay. Right? No thought about it at all. There's no need for us to uh, correct anything. There's no need for us to repent or, or talk things through. We just bumped into each other. And we think our sin with God, sometimes we tend to think that sin with God is like that. Oh, I just bumped into you, God. Oh, I'm so, Adam, go on your own way. No, it's, it's actually incredibly heinous what we do when we sin. And it is not the kind of thing that he can just wink at and let us go. Because if he does, he's a bad judge. So what goes on then? Jesus has to be put forward to demonstrate God's righteousness. So the, the purpose of Jesus' death is, to, is, in a sense, not to acquit us. It's to acquit God. It's to show that God's not wrong in letting us go free. That's the thing that I just think it's got to strike us when we read Romans chapter 3. Because I think that this is, I think this is, if you don't understand this, then the, the death of Jesus does seem a little, it's, it's sometimes tough to understand. Why did he do it? Why did he, why did he put his son to death? Why would he, you know, secular culture, you, you can actually read and they'll, they'll mock this idea. They'll mock the idea that God would put to death his own son. They'll talk about him as though he's barbaric. And, and the reality is until you understand the depths of sin, you don't understand the need for, for redemption. And you don't understand why it's a big deal that Christ would need to be put forward for us. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, isn't there a term that talks about, I forget the name of the term, but so we're declared righteous in Christ, um, which is not being pardoned, but then we're given Christ's righteousness. Are you thinking imputation? But Imputed. Imputation, but then there's another word. Um, I remember hearing actually Sproul talk about when you think of a cross 
the amputation is like the vertical, and then he said another word like the horizontal. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? <coughs> it's not just a justification, but it's like propitiation. Yeah. There you go. Is propitiation the word you're thinking of? No. You'll you'll remember it later oh, when yeah, when you're not talking in front of everybody. Yeah, that. That's what happens to me. I remember all of the important things I should say to you guys after I'm done talking in front of you. <clears throat> um, so he talks about being justified by faith. I'll just put it, just briefly address the idea of faith. What is faith? Our confession says it, and I, I think this is the best definition of faith. It's a receiving and resting. Receiving and resting. I love those two verbs. I think they are good. A receiving and resting of Christ and his benefits. We, we rest in him. We don't, we don't work. Rest is the opposite of work. We receive what Jesus has done, and we rest in it. We're restored by it. Did you raise your hand? Expiation. Expiation. Expiation is the removal of the uncleanness yeah. of sin. Yeah. Big words here. Yeah, lots of big words. There you go. Here we are now. We're in chapter four. Um, so we get to chapter four. And if I could summarize chapter four, it would be something like this. Paul wants us to know he's not inventing this. Paul wants us to know that you're not reading an innovator here. You're not reading somebody who's coming up with this stuff for the first time. He's saying God has always regarded his people this way in the Old Testament. How do you know? Paul proves it. He goes to the Old Testament and he gives the classic example of this, the person that a Jewish person would find the greatest regard for, which would be Abraham, I think. They would, they would find the greatest, either that or Moses, one or the other. Um, and he uses Abraham as his example and he says, look at the life of Abraham. He says, Abraham was right in God's eyes before he kept the law. He quotes from... Uh, he quotes from Genesis. Oh, now I'm going to pretend like I've got to have the actual reference. I don't have it in front of me. So look, it says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That actually is the boiled down essence of his whole argument with Abraham. He's saying, God regarded Abraham as righteous before he got circumcised. And, he, and he's challenging a Jewish person to say, look, you, got, you put so much stock in your circumcision, and yet your father Abraham was righteous before he ever got that. Why do you tell people that they have to have this thing in order to be righteous when even Abraham you would have kicked out of the covenant? So, so he's, he's showing him that, that, that it's always been this way, that God has always regarded someone as being righteous in his eyes by faith, not by works of the law. The works come later. The works are demonstrations of what's going on inside the heart, but they are not the foundation or the ground of the righteousness of a person. And so anyway, Paul wants you to know that he's not an inventor, that he didn't come up with this idea. God has always regarded people as righteous by faith. Then he quotes from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. So again, you've got that pattern there where he's not just, um, he's not, He's not creating anything here. He's not creating and inventing. Um, let's keep going. Let's go to number, chapter 5. So what did he just say? God has always practiced justification by faith alone, even in the Old Testament. When I was a kid, that was one of the questions that I asked my pastor. And maybe I didn't understand his answer, or maybe he didn't understand the question, or maybe he didn't know the answer. But when I was a kid, I asked him, I was probably like, 15 or 16, and I said, how were Old Testament people saved? 
and I, I got a very muddled answer. I'm not even going to try to pretend I gave the answer, but I, I don't know what the answer was. And if a kid asked me today, Pastor, how is a child, how was somebody saved in the Old Testament? The answer would be through faith in Jesus, right? Because, because that's one of the things Paul, Paul does actually uh, in this whole section is he actually talks about the fact that, well, actually it's in Galatians where he says that Abraham looked forward to the day of Jesus. And then Jesus says it himself. So you see that these people are saved by trusting in the coming Savior. So God has always regarded men and women as righteous based on their faith. Abraham is proof that God has always regarded people as righteous based on their faith. And then in chapter 5, just keep going with the argument. Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a very startling message if you're a person who feels that guilt, right? If you're a person who has, who has never really felt peace with God, then to, to, to read verse 5, or the chapter 1, verse 5, that would be a life-changing moment for you. You mean I can have peace with God. You mean he's, he's not angry at me. You know, Luther, Luther was somebody who always felt like God was angry at him. And Luther was somebody who hated God because he thought God always hated him. And then you have this verse right here, and it just stops Luther in his tracks. You mean I could have peace with him? This just seems like such a far gone notion for Luther. The idea that God is no longer angry at me, that there's no animosity between me and the creator now. How is that even possible? And so um, Paul says, yes, you can have peace with God through Jesus And then in verse 9, he says, Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is how we get rescued, right? And we don't get rescued by sticking our head under the covers. And we don't get rescued by uh, distracting ourselves until the moment comes. But we uh, we get rescued by what? Looking to Jesus, who was crucified and who was raised up. So then in chapter 5, Paul says, okay, okay, there are two ways through life. He says, and they're exemplified by these two men. The first man is, who are the two men that Paul, Paul contrasts in chapter 5? of Romans? Adam, and Adam and Jesus, right? He says, you can have one or you can have the other. Uh, and he basically says, look, if you are reading this letter, then you are at least in Adam or you have been in Adam, right? Because all of us by nature are born sons of Adam. Every single one of us emerged from this guy's uh, family line. Uh, We're all part of the Adam family tree. And he says, look, Adam, his sin has been imputed to all of us as his descendants. All of us carry his guilt. All of us carry his corruption. Uh, We are guilty. We 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 are definitely in Adam. But then he says, you can actually be in Christ. He says, his righteousness has been imputed to all who trust in him. So either way, there's imputation. Imputation is what means to regard somebody as something, right? It's to take somebody's status and apply it to them. So in our case, we get, it, we get imputed with Adam's status when we emerge uh, into this world, when we ex- come into existence. We're all sons of Adam. And then he says, but there is a way to be a son of, of Christ instead if you put your faith in him. And so he says, if you choose Adam, you choose death. If you choose Christ, you're choosing life. Who will it be? And of course, by this point in the letter, you know who you should be choosing. You should be choosing Jesus. You should be following after Christ and you should be in Christ instead of Adam. 
Um, fantastic parallel there. He goes with Jesus. Um, then we get to chapter 6, and he starts talking about remaining sin, because here are one of the great frustrations, right? He's talked about peace with God in chapter 5. Like, I can have peace with God. We're no longer enemies. We're, we're now friends now. And, but this great frustration that exists for, I think, so many Christians is that question, you know, I, I trust Jesus now. Why do I still sin? Right? What do I do? What do I do about my heart if I know my heart's not right? You know, what should my attitude toward the sin that I experience be? Is my sin evidence that I'm not a believer? Uh, am I supposed to actually sin more? Uh, one of my best friends growing up had, I think, a bad idea about sin. He told me, I'm supposed to sin more that grace may abound. And he told me that with a kind of a grin on his face. And like, but I think he meant it also. Yeah, I had a funny, I had funny friends growing up. Um, this, my friend had, my friend carried around just like so much beer in the back of his car. And he made his own homemade cigarettes and he had a freezer bag full of homemade cigarettes. It was just gigantic. And just, he smoked like a chimney and he died at a very young age too. Um, one of my best friends growing up, but yeah, I would not have, you know, I wouldn't have uh, put him in charge of a lot of important things in the world. Um, <laughs> but, but this is, this is actually, chapter six is really important for Romans. I think it's one of the reasons Paul wrote Romans. Because Christians are under this slanderous charge or question, and that has to do with what he says in, uh, in this passage should we sin that grace may abound, right? We've talked about the fact that Jesus forgives us. We've talked about the fact that Jesus gets, God gets glory when we get forgiven for our sin. We've talked about the fact that God looks like a, a good judge because of Christ. So why wouldn't we go ahead and put that to the test? Why not sin? Why not sin boldly? That's a misquote of Luther, by the way. That's not what Luther's saying. But why not sin boldly uh, if we know that Christ is there to rescue us? And, and, G, and Paul gives an answer. And his answer is in chapter 6. So chapter, chapter 6, verse... So verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. If I could summarize what he's saying here, the argument that he's making is you are fundamentally not that person. And when you live out those things and when you sin and when you sin boldly and when you drag God's grace through the mud, he's saying you are fundamentally living against the person that you are if you're in Christ. Um, it would be like you're a, you, you are an, an unleaded vehicle and you're still putting diesel, you're putting diesel in the engine, you know? And he's like, he's like you're going to be miserable because this is not who you are. This is not the person that you are. He's actually making a personal identity statement. If you, if you want to look for a verse in the Bible where you find out what we are like, he's saying regard yourselves as no longer in bondage to sin. Um, He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's verse 11, 611. And then he says, there, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. So if you're looking for the motivation for why we no longer sin, it's interesting. He doesn't hold out 
fear of damnation necessarily as the motivation. He doesn't even hold out future reward as his motivation for obedience. Instead, he simply says, that's not who you are. Every time you sin, you're being somebody that you're not. You're living as somebody that you're not because you've been redeemed by Christ. You're, it's like you're wearing clothes that don't fit. It's like you're living a life that's a lie when you sin. Um, I don't know if we think about ourselves that way, but that's the argument that he's making here. Um, if we're in Christ, we have to reject that way because that's not us. Then in chapter 7, he talks about how believers, look, we may be united to Christ, but Paul also is at pains to say that doesn't mean our old nature is totally eradicated. For me, Romans chapter 7, it was a very precious passage. Uh, it was the sort of passage that I went back to a lot as a brand new Christian and as a teenager because you see the tension in this guy. You see who he wants to be and you see who he keeps living as. And, and then he says, um, we know the law is spiritual. This is chapter 7, verse 14. He says, but I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I am not, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Uh, I suspect there's nobody in this room who's a believer that, knows, that doesn't understand that tension in their life. I do do things I don't like. And I think their part of this is, look, this is, this is Paul saying, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, we, we sort of hold somebody like the Apostle Paul up and we think, oh, he's so amazing. I'll never be the Apostle Paul. And Paul is saying, look, I'm struggling with my own vestiges of sin in my own life as well. Um, I think this is a converted person. I know that I've heard people give an interpretation of this passage that this is an unconverted person. My, my issue with Paul describing this chapter 7 as an unconverted person is that unconverted people don't hate sin and they don't battle sin in their own hearts. Yeah. Like an unconverted person doesn't go, oh, I'm, I've got sin. I hate that I have sin. Um, an unconverted person doesn't mind it at all. Um, they might not like the outworking that sin has in their, in their life. They might not like the effects that sin has in their life. But they're not sitting there vexed over the fact that they just wish that they could be the person God called them to be. Um, this is the struggle of a converted person whose heart has been changed but st- still has indwelling sin. Um, I can't remember where I stole this from, but it's not from me. I, I got it from somebody else, maybe Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, if you steal from Sinclair Ferguson, it's always good so no one cares. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think it was Sinclair, but he said, he said it's kind of like D-Day during World War II. Um, you know, once the Allies had broken through the lines, once they had invaded France, from the perspective of history, things are wrapped up, right? From the perspective of history, it's just the beginning of the end for Hitler. And in another sense, though, the Germans are still fighting, right? Often ferociously. In fact, there are books about pockets of soldiers that are still fighting long after Hitler's even dead. And it takes a very long time to go from D-Day to, well, what's the, what's the day for when it actually all ended? I'm not a history guy. What's that? V-E-Day. V-E-Day. So the, the, the distance between D-Day and V-E-Day, that's where we live right now. And the day that we croak, that's the day that V-E-Day happens. What a happy day. I look forward to VE Day. That'll be wonderful. Um, but in the meantime, our, our lives are like a battleground of skirmishes where the enemy is broken, but the fights are still happening. And that's what Paul's describing in Romans chapter 7. He's describing somebody whose life is still filled with all of these skirmishes, attempting to destroy the enemy and the enemy attempting to destroy us. Um, but you'll notice here the problem is not with the law. 
The problem is not the law. The problem is with us. The problem is with our own sin nature, which still remains until we die. And that's what sanctification is. Sanctification is God shaping us, changing us, and helping us to put down all of those resurgences of the enemy uh, until we reach VE Day. So, let's see. I'm going to hold off. I'm going to hold off on chapter, talking about chapter 8 and chapter 9 because we're going to talk about predestination. That's everybody's favorite topic. And it depends on the room. I have, I have a feeling this room's not going to mind talking about predestination for the most part. But, but we'll do it from the text and we'll do it from Romans. But let's just stop. We've still got about seven minutes. Are there any questions about what we've talked about before? I know I just mentioned predestination. Don't ask me questions about predestination. Save that for next week. Hopefully, at least, what I'm, what I'm hoping with doing these overviews is that we're following the flow of the argument. Hopefully, you feel like you can understand how we get from and why we get from chapter 1 to chapter 7 of Romans and why the need for Romans 8 and why the need for Romans 9 because all of these are doing something completely different than the chapter before, and yet they're all building up the same picture, which is God's grace is good to us and he transforms us, and he changes us, and we are a work in progress. That's kind of where we're at at this point in the book. Well, let me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we are sinners who really need this message. We disappoint not only people in our lives, God, but we know that we have disappointed you in our lives. And so this message is good. It is the message that we need to hear. It is the message that we so badly need to hear, which is that there is life and we can have peace with you in spite of the fact that we have sinned, in spite of the fact that we have disappointed you and we've besmirched your name and we've cursed you, yet you still receive us and you are not a bad judge for doing that. We thank you for giving your son so that we could receive peace with Christ and so that you could be a good judge. Would you go with us this week? Give us opportunities to share these words with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give some instructions on the food. Uh, first of all, I know the kids, the kids aren't quite in here yet, so we're a few minutes early. But I have your attention in a way I won't in three minutes. So I'm going to tell you now that the, if, you, if you are a musician or you have a kid who is a musician who's going to be playing, we want the musicians to all go through first. Because the musicians are going to be playing while we eat, and we want to give them a chance to eat first. Makes perfect sense, right? So if you see anybody in front of you who's a musician, let them go, and, and then we can... You have something else you want to say? We're only going to set up like two round tables for people to sit at, people who have a harder time holding their plate, but we're going to set up two So if you can eat in your seat, go for it. If you need a table, we're going to have a couple of those set up. So that's the message. Yes, Asha. Who is the right person to, to show us where the seats need to be? And Is that the deacons? Yeah, if you can help with chairs, please do. Just make sure we don't take too many rows out. So, yeah. Let me, let me also do this then. Let me pray. Let me also go ahead and pray before we start. So I'm going to pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the food that we have to enjoy here. We remember that we are not owed meals, that we are not owed food. We thank you that you not only give us daily bread, but that you give us much more than that. That you are so generous to us, you are so kind to us, that you give us good food to eat. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for those who made this food. We thank you for those working in the kitchen so that we can be served. And we thank you for those musicians who are going to be playing and sharing their gifts. We pray that they would be blessed and that they have been blessed in the preparation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.